Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to this special Science Festival edition of Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature art for aliens, geothermal power and cocktails. John Lomberg is one of the world's most distinguished artists inspired by astronomy. Mark West chatted to John at the Ultima Science Festival about designing the images that accompanied the Voyager spacecraft. The first question Mark asked was how John had come up with the images to include on Voyager in the first place. I think one of the reasons that Carl Sagan asked me to work on the project was that he and I had had many conversations specifically about what aspects of human society, human biology, the Earth, would be easy for extraterrestrials to understand and which would be completely foreign and obscure. Uh, It sort of forces you to look at uh, what is arbitrary and what is real. For, for example, the sound of thunder would probably be the same in any atmosphere. Uh, that, that, that the, the thing that makes thunder here would make thunder on other planets. So if you presented a sound, a sound of thunder, that might be something that could be recognized. Whereas if you presented the sound of a, of a motorcycle, that would be more difficult. So what we did was try to first come up with uh, what would we like to show. We'd like to show children, we'd like to show families, we'd like to show buildings, we'd like to show vehicles, and I I would imagine that if you got any group of people and sat them down, you'd come up with the same list of things. What do you want to show? There was nothing completely uh, uh, out of left field that we showed. And then it was a matter of looking at pictures and thinking, well, I know that one thing is overlapping another and obscuring it, but if I didn't, could I think that they were actually part of the same thing? So it was a matter of trying to find pictures that seemed to show something as clearly uh, as possible. And then another uh, principle that guided us was to try to make the sum of the uh, pictures more than just all the individual parts. So there were various themes that would run through it. For example, there are a lot of pictures we showed hands because the hand is such an important part of what humans do. So we wanted to make sure we showed plenty of hands plenty of parents with children, plenty of people uh, forming themselves into a circle. If a group of people want to talk, we, we arrange ourselves so we can all see each other's faces. So to try to have recurrent images that would uh, uh, help them understand, of course, how well we, ach- we achieved that, we will never know because we can't get out of being human. But it was fun to try. And you were talking about the communication of colour, so, so that any alien that picked it up would understand what, what colour the image was. How did you do that? Colour, as one of the speakers tonight uh, at the Big Night of Science uh, said, is actually something that we think we know and we do automatically. But you start to look at it and it gets to be very complicated indeed. The best shot that we had was to take the prism of light from the sun. That is the spectrum of light when you put it through a prism separates into colors and there are these uh, lines across the spectrum that are caused by uh, elements in the atmosphere of the sun and those lines are very well known to astronomers and they're as distinctive as a fingerprint 
So even if you saw this picture in black and white, you might, if you were an alien astronomer, guess it was a spectrum because of these vertical lines that ran across it. And if they got that far, if they thought, well, hey, this might be a spectrum, the pattern of lines tells them which portion of the spectrum that we're looking at. It's not the infrared portion, it's not the ultraviolet portion, it's the portion that we call visible light. Now, they might not see in that spectrum. They might have to translate it into whatever sort of colors they saw. But we think that uh, the, the one object that has color that they would understand would be the color of stars. So if we could specify this is the color of our star and this is the part of the spectrum of our star that we use, then uh, it gives them a fighting chance of trying to get it right. And one of my uh, particular interests is mathematics. and I'm interested how you communicated communicated the maths. Did you go back to the, the basic axioms of maths and put like a, a dot down, which means one, and two dots means two, that type of thing? Absolutely. That's exactly how we did it, to try to give a sense of numbers, uh, which again is something that you'd think, well, numbers are universal. Wherever you are in the universe, uh, one and one make two, and two and two make four. Uh, I spoke to a mathematician who said, well, actually, you know, there are some people that don't have discrete numbers. It's all a continuum. There's greater than or less than, but the idea of having a discrete number uh, might not be something that's universal. So uh, we tried to indicate mathematics, as you suggested, with, with what we call tally dots, one dot, two dot, three dots, and then assigning a binary way of expressing that, and then the more familiar Arabic numerals, and then the signs for operations, uh, plus and minus and power laws and things like that. The reason we did that wasn't so much to try to teach them mathematics, but to allow us to use symbols with the pictures to say how big something was, how old something was, how much something weighed. It's kind of like what they did in the movie Contact. Well, yes, I worked with Carl Sagan both on the book Contact and then the film that was made of it. I did uh, the animation sequences, especially the one that opened the, the film. I, I designed that. And uh, a lot of these ideas from Voyager were, in fact, ideas that had been around for a while among people who were interested in this topic. And uh, one of the things that I think makes Contact an unusual film is it really tries to explain the scientific underpinnings of the so-called uh, search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which is, what might we share? I mean, really, we know that two and two equals four. They know that two and two equals four. We're not telling anything that we don't know. But if you can start with that and then build up to being able to send your music, now that might be something worth hearing. Actually, on Voyager, we sent many musical compositions, uh, ranging from Western classical music to Aboriginal music to music from the great traditions of China and India and, uh, and the Americas. We really wanted, uh, in general, to make this not a message from Americans or a message from Westerners, but a message from the whole world. And particularly with music, we tried to suggest something of the range of musical styles in the world. In the uh, program that I did tonight, I used one of the Bach pieces, which in my opinion, because the logic of it, the order of it, is all self-contained. Uh, you don't have to know about uh, anything else to understand the patterns in the music. And what I think unites science and art 
is they both look for patterns. It's the identification of patterns and the pleasure in the recognition of those patterns. So that's what gives me some hope that uh, some of our music might not only be recognized, but enjoyed by any extraterrestrial that we are lucky enough to contact. But uh, we think if they're in starships, which is what they have to be to find Voyager in space, Voyager will never crash land on another planet. Space is far too empty. So it can only be found by beings who are in uh, ships traveling between the stars, very far advanced from our technology. So building a record player, we hope, won't be too difficult for them. <laughs> that was John Lomberg chatting with Mark West about communicating with aliens. Next, Brian Lennon spoke to me at the Live Futures Festival about disrupting the electric power status quo by having Australians use their compulsory superannuation funds to buy small, cheap, clean geothermal power plants owned by the citizens as an alternative to the Australian government's proposed emissions trading scheme. Small-scale power stations. I mean, they're quite small. They're only 30 million. You pump out 250 megawatts. I mean, it's only a fifth of Hazelwood's output, but right. so what? You know, you've got a little power station, and but it's accessible. That's what I like about it. It's accessible. Can you find a 1,000 people who put 30 grand of their super into this? And these power yes, stations? Sorry, sure you can. And you're talking about geothermal? Yeah. The, the, those costs are from a company that is actually building... Um, or wants to build geothermal stations in this uh, stretch between Anglesey and Geelong in Victoria. And that's their cost estimates. It's going to set, cost them a certain amount to set up, about, I think they said $35 million, and about $30 million per power station. The beauty of these things is you can put them anywhere where there's a nice concentrated source of energy. Once you've got the initial things like a very expensive drilling rig to go down four kilometres, you've got the potential to put them in many, many different places. And they can be quite very small and very local. If anybody has any idea of the size of a power station like uh, Hazelwood in Victoria, it is immense with the, with the water storage pond, you know, the, the cooling pond. It's just a colossal um, acreage to, to have that power station. So these things are like you have your little local power station somewhere tucked in close enough to the grid to pump the power into it, and it's, yeah. it's, they're accessible to all the rest of us. And the thing that I really like about it is well, that's one of them, but the second thing I really like about it is that it's going to take us towards what has to be the future of energy, which which is uh, distributed energy generation from many sources with intelligent grid. Yes, and this is a, this is the smart one of the smart ways to do it and to start that process off where it's a people-owned power station on a small scale that's owned by bunches of people. Well, the smart grid is essential because, as you were saying before, at the moment, if you have your own, say, I was reading a new scientist, people complaining that they could afford to get a wind power thing for their home that would feed into the grid, but they couldn't actually afford to install it because in order for them to feed into the grid, they had to have all this extra equipment so that if the grid went down, but they still had power, that it wouldn't overload the grid while it was down. Something to do with... Okay. Yep. That makes sense? Yes, it does, yeah. Yes, I think that governments are finding all sorts of ways of making it complicated when it doesn't have to. That it's much easier than they like to pretend. And the, and the touchstone of that, the proof of that, is that the German government has had this 
very generous feed-in tariff for the gross amount of energy you produce, not net like a lot of places in Australia do, but the gross energy you produce at roughly 10 times the, the baseline cost. And they have had systems running like that, programs running like that for 14 years. And the result of that program is that they have 2,500 times the installed renewable energy uh, capacity that Australia has, even though they only have half the energy falling out of the sky or sunlight. The fact that it works has also demonstrated by the fact that at least 45 other countries that I've checked on have adopted the German model. Right. Why we don't... Well, that is a serious question about who wants, you know, governments protecting the coal industry, I suspect, and that that's, they won't bring this in. So I don't think it's a question of not being able to do it. It's been proven that it can be done, and it does encourage a massive uh, installation of renewable energy, and it does lead to a uh, generation of, of a of serious-scale industry on, in renewable energies and a lot of employment in renewable energies, but they'd rather hang on to the, the jobs in the coal sector and look after that sector than, than uh, actually produce the goods the way it's, being, it's now happening in many countries. They're not actually really good jobs in the coal sector, are they? The mining industry is a pretty solid sort of industry these days. It's pretty well managed and there's really good money in it for the, for the workers in it and all the rest of it. I can understand the inclination to protect the industry and all the rest of it and the massive export earn of shipping coal oh, to other sure. parts of the world. I can understand that they're doing that. What I don't like is the dishonesty about why they're making it extremely difficult for renewables to to get a fair shake of it. It's, it's just funny that they've gone through and said, look, the only way we can change things is by economic pressure. And by economic pressure, we mean making it too expensive to do things the old way mm. and cheaper to do things the new way. And what they're saying really is that they're going to make coal more expensive. <laughs> they say it's unfair that the polluters will have to pay, so therefore we'll give them free money. Regulation and um, tax isn't really going to do it because... No, I think an emissions trading scheme as currently proposed with the massive exceptions that they've put in for export industries, for the primary industry for many years, for other exceptions um, that they've put into place. Um, the way it's structured right now, and I heard this, these arguments for the past week or so between leading up to the vote in the Senate, seems to me like there's two sides to a, the same party arguing about I can do nothing better than you can do nothing and it doesn't seem to me to be have any serious content at all on either side of politics so I've you know, lost any respect for them being able to do any expectation that they're going to do anything serious until community understanding and community pressure becomes so strong that it overcomes the, the uh, their resistance to actually do anything serious. So is this going to be like a co-op for a power station instead of um, leaving it to a corporation or is something? No, I think I think what makes sense all the time is that you build a company and you do it on straight economic principles and you just tell you know people buy into it and shares in a conventional manner. I, I think co-ops have all sorts of inherent problems, um, especially at this sort of scale when you want to do commercial enterprises. I think it should be a company that should have these sort of things and buy people buy into the shares in a conventional way, and it should be held accountable in a conventional way. I think that's the way to go. I mean, the question isn't that we're going to, are we going to displace capitalism with co-ops. I think the question is, are we going to be better capitalists <laughs> and 
ones that are more responsible and have a longer-term vision. And I think... I, I suspect we can probably defeat the short-term capitalists at their own game, I think. Thank you very much. That was Brian Lennon talking about geothermal power stations. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. The science of cocktails. Is there really such a thing? Mark West investigates with celebrity chef Manuel Terran. Do you think cocktail making is like a science experiment, or do you just throw it all in there and see what happens? What do you do? Um, yes, it is like a science experiment, but with any science, you have a hypothesis. You have a, you have a way of, of structuring something together in order to formulate what the outcome might or might not be, you know, and like we did tonight with regards to certain experiments. Yeah, you can have a, a basic makeup, like, you know, I showed you the, the, the window that had the, you know, strong, sweet, sour and bitter, and you can use any of those combinations, but it's interesting to see what happens when you, when you use a different sour or you use a different bitter, you know, um, and we, we talked about different, different sours as well, you know, passion fruit, and so it's, it's, yeah, it is like science where you can experiment, but you have to know the basics, you have to work within certain parameters, you know, there are always exceptions to the rule. And with anything, you can never get anything solid. There's always exceptions to the rule. And it's not all in the taste. There's a lot in the smell. We did heaps of stuff tonight with mint, which, which completely changed the way the cocktail worked. How does smell work? Um, smell is probably the most important. Um, you know that, that old experiment where you kind of, you know, you pinch your nose or you have somebody hold your nose and you try different things and you try and guess what you're actually eating. It's a very, very difficult to pull out certain flavours because your, your main olfactory uh, tool has been shut off. Um, and it really is all about the nose. The mouth can only taste four essential things. Sweetness, sourness, bitterness, and salty. That's it. Um, and even that starts to kind of shut down once you kind of close the, the nasal passage off. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we are animals that... that are all about the, 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 the nose. We follow our nose, if, if you like. You know, a dish that smells fantastic you know, becomes more appealing. Um, you know, you'll be walking down the street, you'll smell a, a girl's perfume as she walks by, and it'll take you back to somebody that you knew 10 years ago. Um, you know, so it's, it's very, very intense and very kind of... It, it triggers certain things in our brain. And one of the other things we made tonight was molecular cocktails. I've never heard of that, but that is a particularly sciencey name. Is there is there anything particularly molecular about it? Um, look, interestingly enough, the cocktail that we made from was from uh, 1888. So, with regards to to molecular and it being such a buzzword now, you know, something like the the foam that was created by the fact that somebody that didn't know how it actually worked. Like now, we can say, well, yes, you know, the the dairy product within this drink. Um, uh, forms around the bubbles of, of seltzer um, and stays that way, therefore creating essentially a, a, a sturdy foam, you know, that becomes part of the cocktail. We showed how you can recreate this using, you know, a, a, a whipped cream canister. But, you know, then there's these natural elements like, like pineapple juice that creates foam as well. I mean, apart from that, yeah, you can add gelatin to something and solidify it, but what that necessarily does in the world of molecular, I'm not really sure. Um, I think more molecular is like, you know, uh, trying these different sugars and how they affected the, the drink. I think that's where we kind of can start to break down, you know, the realms of a cocktail um, more seriously. Again, like, like sour, you know, 
make a margarita one day, um, use lemon. You know, make it the next day, use lime. Or you know, do them all together. Use passion fruit, orange, grapefruit, pineapple juice, and you will see how that cocktail drastically changes. You know, obviously with lemon and lime, you're talking about very, very small differences, but differences nonetheless. So that when I talk about the molecular aspect of cocktails, that's what I talk about. So breaking it down to to its building blocks, and those building blocks that we talked about: strong, sweet, sour, and bitter. And some of my friends swear blind that rum makes them angry or, or red wine will make them depressed or tequila will, you know, get them going. Do you think there's anything to this? Uh, tequila, I have found, it has this natural high. It creates a natural high. Um, one of the interesting things about the raw product is that agave grows for, for 10 plus years under the Mexican sun. It has no irrigation. Um, it's not planted it's, an, it's a completely natural product. And I think this is one of the reasons. How we can specifically find that, I don't know. Um, but, you know, they, they check for the sugars in the agave plants and then they, they harvest them and that's how that's made. Uh, gin, I don't know about wine, but I've heard gin can be a depressant. Um, I agree that all alcohol is, is pretty depressant. But, um, but juniper berries ha- tend to have that quality about them where where they can be depressant. They can also, I've heard, they can get you horny. Uh, you know, it's, just, it's, it's, all, it's all relative. Um, but, yeah, as to, as to rum, it is a bit of a fighting fuel. Um, and interestingly enough, I think it is the basis of what it's made from, which we're talking about molasses, where rum made from pure sugar cane has different reactions than rum made from molasses. I don't know why. You know, molasses obviously being a byproduct of the sugar refining industry, could be could be saying a lot, but um, but you know a lot of rum here is also has sugar added to it, so you're almost looking about a liqueur. And when guys have too much sugar, they get too hyped up, so they they tend to get you know a bit more yeah. masculine than they should. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess I guess that's true. Um, you know, red wine has does things to me it triggers uh, asthma in me so i mean there's you know there's certain um aspects that are now put into a lot of spirits that can have a detrimental effect which is kind of unfortunate but you know if you try 100 percent blue agave tequila or a quality bourbon or a quality rye um you should be doing pretty well i mean it's it is all about the quality of the spirit and the absence we had with the last cocktail I, i've certainly never had enough to see green elephants or whatever Wormwood's supposed to do. You would never. You would never. Interestingly enough, I've, I've, uh, we launched um, some of our brands in, in the US just recently, and I've been kind of pulled into this ongoing battle of the absinthe and, um, you know, and what Wormwood actually does and Thujon being the, the main uh, chemical compound. Look, at the end of the day, you will probably die of alcohol poisoning before you see anything. Um, it's not a hallucinogen. Um, it was believed to have the same properties as THC, as marijuana. That really didn't come, come to, to, to fruition either once they did more tests. Um, what it does have, and this is the interesting dynamic of, of drinking absinthe, is that Thujon actually allows your, your brain to spark off. You know, the neurons tend to spark off um, a lot quicker, a lot more readily, uh, you know, they're not inhibited at all. So, which means that you, the more absinthe you drink, the more lucid you actually become. Right. Um, and excitable and could be agitated, depends on, on how much you drink. But then there's also the dichotomy of it having loads of alcohol. Yeah. So while your brain's going, this, this, this is going absolutely nuts, your body's kind of getting that downer. So it's, and most drugs work in that kind of tandem of doing 
one extreme and the other and then crashing them together. So that's really what absinthe is all about. I have actually drunk enough to... to get um, I mean if I can call it a high um, you get an absinthe high or a thujone high and you do you go wow I should be absolutely legless right about now and you are but you are everything is just very clear um, and I can understand how the bohemian artist set of, of the Belle Epoque in, in France would use it to, to you know to their detriment because at the end of the day they were drinking very very high alcohol a product and sometimes you know of dubious quality um, but you know it, it almost I would say it almost allowed them to, to open up that door of their imagination uh, a little bit more not necessarily see things but you know with artists and poets they're always more descriptive than they probably should be and I think that's where all of this came about where it was like oh it's psychotropic oh it's hallucinogenic it's not it's, it's actually it just actually makes you more lucid I have a huge amount of respect for the martini and it's one of those go-to drinks that where if I've had a real crap day, it's just shit has just been tough. I'll, I'll get home or I'll go into a bar and I'll order a martini. And honestly, by the time I finish, or by the time I hit the bottom of that glass, the worries of my day are gone. And I recommend it to anybody. If you've really had a crap day, make yourself a martini. And it's great when you make it because it's very therapeutic in the, in the action of making it at home. Because you're going to the trouble... You're skewering the, the olives, you know, or you're, you're taking that nice peel off the lemon to give it a twist, you know, but you're, you're diluting it, you're getting it to your point, to the point that you like, that you enjoy. It's your martini. And there's, there's that beautiful, simple pleasure of it, you know, it's just in this, in this conical glass, you know, you can have it with one or two olives, five, you know, lemon rinds, it doesn't matter, like, you make it to your taste. But once you get to the bottom, you're great. You're sorted. Everything is, seems okay. And that's, what, that's the one cocktail I can that's say that about. So either that or a shot of tequila. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> Cheers. Well, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. thank you. Well, yes, on the back of four cocktails, it seems that there may just be some science in the making of cocktails. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was Mark West. Diffusion is being produced in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.